experts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. It's earnings season and CEOs across America begun to tell the shareholders how much profit their companies made during the last three months of 2020. The general expectation is for nothing heroic. According to FactSet, earnings for the big companies in the S&P 500 likely fell 7% compared to last year. Over the long term, stock prices tend to track along with earnings. And yes, stock prices sometimes rise much faster than earnings, particularly when interest rates are low like they are now. To prove that, all you have to do is look back over the past year and we'll see that stocks surge to records even as profits plunge due to the pandemic. So over the long term, valuation or price to earnings multiples matter. In the short term, not so much. My guess is that investors are going to give CEOs another pass if they do report a fourth straight quarter of profit declines. And that's because the markets are focusing instead on the huge turnaround that it sees beginning. After getting blindsided by the COVID-19 pandemic last year, the economy will hopefully right itself this year. And as more stimulus flows from Washington, as vaccines return daily life closer to normal, analysts are guessing that the S&P earnings are going to grow by roughly 17% in the first quarter of this year before accelerating to almost 46% in the spring. Average all that out, and they expect earnings to grow this year around 22.5%. If you ask me, companies better meet those lofty expectations. Otherwise, the U.S. stock market is going to look even more expensive than it does now. Some people are already calling it a bubble that may be on a similar scale to the dot-com boom or the financial orgy that preceded the Great Depression. I'm not quite in that camp, but I am nervous. I don't think you can blame anyone for being nervous right now because by several measures, stocks are now valued at the most expensive they've been since the dot-com bubble popped in 2000. And some of this bubble talk could cool if things pull closer to normal, meaning earnings rise more than stock prices, and that would temper some of the extreme valuations. And that's exactly what Wall Street is forecasting for this year. The S&P 500 rising much less than earnings. That's why when companies report their results, investors will likely pay more attention to the forecast they give for 2021 than the actual results that they're reporting. Markets are forward-looking machines, right? Some CEOs have already made comments that have bolstered some enthusiasm for a recovery. Just a week or two ago, while reporting the biggest annual loss in its history, Delta Airlines, symbol DAL, said it expects to bring in as much cash as it spends by the spring. And I tell you, that's a huge turnaround for a company that was burning through about $12 million a day 
during the last three months of this past year in $100 million a day at the end of last March. They said things are going to be rocky for a while, of course, but it's looking for business to pick up as vaccines become more widespread or more widely available. Offices reopen and travelers start to feel a bit more confident. Things are brightening at several of the big banks, too. They're no longer squirreling away as much money in reserves to cover future loan losses. Bank America, symbol BAC, in their earnings release, said they're freeing up over $800 million in reserves. And JP Morgan released almost $3 billion in loan loss reserves. Now, it's no secret that I think there are opportunities in the financials. I know most people think the banks are dead money because of low interest rates. For those of you who aren't as familiar, the way a bank makes money is by borrowing short term and lending it out longer term. And the difference between the price they pay for their deposits, think CDs, and the money that they earn on their loans, like mortgages and car loans, the difference is called the net interest margin. And with rates near zero, the spread isn't all that great. Basically, it's squadoosh. But I don't think that's the full story. The story that most investors are focused on, that's it. But I don't think it's the complete story. I think that banks actually have more capital today than they had 10 years ago. And that means that they're much less riskier businesses than they were. And because of that, their cash flows are more valuable and they should result in higher PE multiples. Now, I don't want to get too wonky, but said another way, the bank should be worth more now than they were 10 years ago because they're just better businesses. But most of the Wall Street analysts are still looking at it and they say, oh, well, you know, banks have historically traded at oh, 10 or 11 times earnings. So that's where they should trade going forward. I don't think that there's been any acknowledgement that they're actually better businesses. And I think larger banks have more of a competitive advantage than the smaller type banks, just because of their scale. Their scale helps them with things like mobile app development. No one really goes into a bank anymore. Helps them with fraud protection and, and of course, regulatory compliance. And that's a big cost. Those are all big, costly items. So I think the larger banks have more of a competitive advantage. So what's going to happen here is either the market re-rates the banks, meaning they'll end up paying more for them, or the banks look at it and say, you know what? There's no better use of our money than to buy back our own stock. Why should we make 3% mortgage loans when we can buy back our own stock at a discount? Hmm. In general, I think the banks should be trading higher than what they've traditionally been valued at. And if you agree with that, then you should naturally take a look at some of these banks because they do look compelling. Over the last few months, I've been a buyer both for myself and for clients, a number of the banks. Of course, you always have to do your own research too. My favorite of all of them is US Bank Corp, simple USB. Trades around $45, paying close to a 4% dividend. And the reason why I like USB so much is because that they've been able to generate some really attractive returns on their capital in what you could call a really challenging interest rate environment. Now, the difference between USB 
and what I call the big four, that's JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank America, and Citigroup, the difference between USB and the big four is that they generate as much revenue from fee-based services, things like merchant processing, issuing credit cards, uh, wealth management services. They generate almost as much revenue from those types of things as they do from lending. USB generates almost 40% of their income from fee-based sources. Like I said, those are things like payment services and wealth management. I think that fee-based reoccurring revenue is always more valuable than the one-off sales. And another great thing about this is that you really don't need as much capital to do it. So for every dollar of deposits, USB generates a higher level of profitability with much better capital efficiency than what your typical bank does. So I do like things like USB. I like Goldman Sachs, Symbol GS, and basically the financials in general. Now, with that said, while I like the prospects of most of my current investments, not all of them, but most of them, it's getting harder to find new ones that meet my quality and price criteria. That far more than any top-down indicator, like what the market is trading at, that tells me that the market is in a dangerous state. That's what makes me nervous. Over my 20-plus years of managing money professionally, difficulty finding new ideas has been a good indicator of an overextended market. That doesn't mean that we should expect an imminent market collapse or even a collapse at all. But the implied expectations for stocks are for most things to go right, for interest rates to stay low for a long, long time, for inflation to remain low, for an ec- economic recovery to continue to gain speed, for uh, calm, uh, you know, a calm geopolitical environment. All these things could happen. They might even be likely to happen. However, Current stock prices don't leave much room for anything to go wrong. They lack what I call a margin of safety. Just like almost nobody could have predicted last year's pandemic and the ensuing damage that occurred, we're just as unlikely to predict where or why the next set of problems are going to occur. What is predictable is that if or when these challenges do occur, there's plenty of room for the currently optimistic stock prices to decline. So what do I think is the best way to deploy capital in this type of environment? Well, very carefully. I'm not saying that we should sell our investments, all our investments and hold cash. That's not really an approach that I know how to add value with. It does follow that we should keep the bar high for new investments and be vigilant to guard against a permanent loss of capital. Ultimately, we know that the market at some point will overreact. And I just want to be prepared, both mentally and in terms of my portfolio, to take advantage of the next set of irrationally priced investments that come my way. And I want to talk about two more things before we get out of here. GameStop and the energy markets. All we were hearing for weeks on end was SPAC this, SPAC that, SPAC, SPAC, SPAC. That was until the Reddit crowd came along and they started to buy GameStop. 
and a few other heavily shorted stocks. So there are a number of things here. First, if you're a short seller, then you already know that that's a tough way to make a living. And this shouldn't surprise you one bit. You don't like it, but you really shouldn't be surprised. I've heard some people say that this was market manipulation. I I don't know about all that. This just seems to me like a bunch of people got together and decided buying the stock was a good idea for them. Remember, they were buying the stock. The stock that they were buying had a had a short position that was something like 140%. I don't even know how you get to that number. I haven't dug dug in and tried to find out how they calculated that number, if it includes options or not. But common sense would tell you if there's a rush on it, then it's going to be hard to replace the 140 shares you borrowed when there's only 100 shares available. Just That's just common sense. Like I said, I don't know how you can be that short in the first place. And I think that's something that needs to be looked at. When, the, when this frenzy was at its peak, some brokerage firms turned around, shut down uh, the buy orders. You could always liquidate. They just, just wouldn't let you buy. And there was talk of these, these firms being against the little guy. And I think it's been well publicized by now that the brokerages had deposit requirements, which isn't unusual. They had to post their collateral. They really had no choice, well, except to be better capitalized than what they were. And the unfortunate part about this is that I think just as many, if not more, people lost money doing this than people who made money from doing it. It's pretty common for folks to jump in at the peak, and but I am happy for those people who have made money. And now that all that's starting to calm down, well, we, we can get back to the SPACs. One thing, to change subjects, one thing that you may have missed was a report from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the IEA, and just because it came out before New Year's. Yeah, I know, may not be on your watch list, watch list, but the IEA said that the U.S. annual consumption from renewable energy sources exceeded the consumption from coal for the first time in 130 years. Folks, we can all see what's coming down the pike. If you haven't started already, it's probably time you start digging into renewable energy companies. I bought one for myself and for clients that I talked about during my annual outlook. You can find that on our website, which is xmlfg.com. Once again, it's xmlfg.com. It's under the resources tab, so you can find it there. I said I wouldn't talk about the stock on the podcast, but you can find it in that presentation. The bottom line is, everyone's talking about decarbonization. It's become a global objective, and there's still a long way to go into to getting to where everyone wants to be. Amazon, Walmart, Nike, they've all said they wanted to be on 100% renewable energy by 2025. By 2030, Microsoft wants to be carbon negative. By 2024, GM wants to be 100% renewable, and and the list goes on and on. Up until recently, I wouldn't have, have invested in something like solar. That's just because producing it was cost prohibitive. 
and it relied on huge government subsidies. But over time, the cost has dropped significantly. And according to Bloomberg, they expect it to drop even further. And we look back during this past recession last year, the demand for electricity went down. Demand for fossil fuel was down 10%. But, but the demand for renewable energy was up 14%. So that's me saying that costs are coming down and the demand, long-term demand, is growing significantly. What else is growing? Well, investor demand. Over the last five years, $2 trillion have been invested. And Bloomberg predicts that that number is going to grow to about $10 trillion over the next 10 years. In my opinion, the industry looks to be on a very sustainable growth path. That doesn't mean that these stocks are cheap. They've been on a run too. But I think it's time to start digging and find some names you might want to own in the future. Okay, we're going to get out of here. Remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. I'm Eric Whiteman, and this has been Common Sense Investing. to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talk about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and are not necessarily those of the XML Financial Group. I typically own and trade the securities I'm discussing, both personally and for my clients, but not all of them. Likewise, employees of XML and our affiliate broker-dealer may be trading and providing advice regarding the securities I mentioned to their clients as well. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, you should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I suggest you get someone who's qualified in those areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. I like to make projections and other forward-looking statements, which are just that, opinions, and are not actual results and are only valid as of the date of this recording. Things change constantly. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.